Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, uh, where we'll look at the, the last three verses of this chapter. Matthew chapter 23, this is Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the ministry of your Spirit now as we come to read and study your holy word. O oh, Father, speak to us, for we are listening. Amen. Well, now the, the battle is over. Essentially, the war is now over. Over the course of the last few chapters, we've seen Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious elites who were determined to discredit him, if not outright condemn him. And we've seen Jesus come out of that conflict as the unquestioned victor. The crowd who are watching and listening have marveled at the answers that Jesus gave to the questions that were designed to trap him. And his opponents have been left silenced, and in that silence they have been left humiliated. There's no question, as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 23, that Jesus has won this debate. And that has been underscored and, and emphasized by what we have been looking at over the past couple of weeks in the final closing remarks that Jesus makes, first to the crowd, warning them not to follow the scribes and the Pharisees, and then in the prophetic condemnation that he gives to the scribes and the Pharisees themselves, in which Jesus effectively stands as the divine prosecutor and condemns them for failing to execute their duty as the shepherds of Israel. And so with verse 36, it's clear that, that the war is over. Nothing is going to stop Jesus performing His work as the great Redeemer. We have just witnessed the, the most bold and the most forthright attack on Jesus that we have seen in the entirety of this gospel. And we have seen that bold and forthright attack on Jesus take place right in the heart of the power base of official Judaism, right in the temple itself. And Jesus has come out of it effectively unscathed. And so it's clear to us, the, the readers of this gospel, that, that although the cloud has grown darker over the past few chapters, although the shadow of the, clock, the cross has just loomed larger and larger in these last chapters than, than, than anywhere else. What we have just seen of Jesus is, is enough for us to know 
that regardless of what comes from now on, Jesus will not be defeated. The success of his messianic work is now a foregone conclusion. But it's interesting as we move from verse 36 to verse 37, it's interesting that there is no triumphalism in Matthew's gospel at this point. There's no celebration. There's no rejoicing. Instead, what we find is this rather melancholic segue in which we find Jesus mourning over the state of first century Judaism as it is encapsulated by the city of, of Jerusalem. Now, what we find in these verses appears to be really a private contemplation of Jesus. There's no real audience in mind here. He doesn't seem to be speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees anymore. He doesn't seem to be speaking really to the crowd anymore, even to his disciples. It reads like a private utterance of, of Jesus. There's a feeling in these verses as if we're, as if we're eavesdropping, as if Jesus has gone off by himself to a to an edge of the temple, and he's overlooking Jerusalem, and in that quiet moment, alone in the wake of all that has just happened, Jesus mutters really to himself these, these melancholic words. But it appears that Matthew or somebody has been close enough to hear what Jesus has said, and, and he writes them down for us, and, and what we find is is Jesus in the wake of this battle, really in the wake of the concluding battle of the, of the war, we, we find Jesus essentially heartbroken and mourning, grieving over the spiritual state of the holy capital, lamenting that instead of being the very center of, of the messianic hope, instead of being the very center of of the celebrations that the Messiah had come, it instead had been morphed and twisted into being the very place in which the gospel was so hated and God Himself was so resented that the messengers of God, the prophets first, and now the Son of God Himself are so opposed that they're murdered. The imagery that Jesus uses here to express his grief over Jerusalem and the grief he feels really over the state of first century Judaism for which Jerusalem stands here as a representative symbol. The imagery that Jesus uses here, this imagery of a hen and its chicks, might appear a little, a little odd to us. We're familiar with the imagery of sheep and a shepherd. We're familiar by now of the imagery of, of little children that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Road back in Matthew 18, but, but now Jesus uses another image, and he compares Jerusalem to, to little chicks and, and compares himself as to a hen. It, it's odd, but what would have been obvious to Matthew's first primarily Jewish readership, he knew their Old Testaments, 
is that what Jesus is doing here is he is citing language that's found throughout the Old Testament to depict the right and true relationship of God to his people. It's an image that we find really beginning all the way back in Exodus 19, that absolutely formative, definitive chapter in our Bibles. Here's God's people, newly freed from their slavery in Egypt, on their way to the promised land, and God sits them down in the wilderness. He brings them through a wilderness classroom, we could say, right? There's two wilderness wanderings. The, the second wandering, the 40 years, is a, is a time of discipline and instruction. But, but the first wandering, as God brings them from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and then on to, to the Jordan, it's essentially a, a classroom in which Jesus teaches his people about the nature of discipleship. And, and right at the beginning, in Exodus 19, he sits them down and, and he uses avian imagery to communicate their relationship to him. In Exodus 19:4, God says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God says to them that, that as they consider how they are to live and move and have their being in the light of the redemption that they have just experienced from Egypt, they are to remember first and foremost that they are who they are simply by the saving work of God. They did nothing. They're passive recipients of the grace of God. He took them on His, on his back and He and He took them out of Egypt like an eagle, carrying them on, on, on his wings. As they are going through this classroom, as they are learning what their redemption means for their self-identity, God says to them, you have to understand that you are to me like little chicks whose mother comes and, and, and swifts them out of danger. It's the same imagery that Moses will use in his song in Deuteronomy 32 as he meditates on and then responds to the grace of God in the salvation of his people. In Deuteronomy 32, referring to Israel, uh, Moses sings and he says, God found him in his desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. As Moses considers who Israel are, he says, this is your relationship. You're tiny, helpless, like a, like a little chick. But God is, is this faithful mother eagle who hovers over you, protects you, who catches you when you fall, and, and brings you into safety. It's the same imagery that's picked up by David in Psalm 17 when he writes, keep me as, interestingly, picking up all the previous imagery, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David understands that he is inherently weak and he needs God to cover him and protect him like a, like a mother bird protects its vulnerable young. We could go on and on 
It's an image that's repeated throughout the Psalms. It's it's an image that Jeremiah will use to, to talk about God's, the judgment that God will bring on the enemies of his people. It's something we find throughout the Old Testament, this language of God's people relating to him as, as little chicks, vulnerable, dependent, weak, but being protected and watched over by this powerful and careful mother. It's a metaphor, of course, that is very similar to the metaphors of sheep or little children that Jesus has used before. Domestic sheep, the most probably the most vulnerable of all animals. Little children absolutely dependent upon their parents. It's a metaphor that's designed to impact God's people with the, the reality of our utter helplessness and God's total care and protection. It's an image that effectively communicates our utter helplessness and our salvation and the total work of God to bring us up out of our danger and to sustain and care for us. It's, it's an image that's profoundly humbling. It's not how you would maybe describe yourself, but it's how God describes you. It's humbling. In a sense, it's humiliating. It breaks you of your pride. But you understand in that it is it's gloriously humiliating. It confronts us with this great gospel truth that as helpless and as vulnerable as we are in our sin, God, the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, He cares for us and He watches over us. It's the gospel truth that what we could not do for ourselves, crippled by our sin, God in His grace does for us. But as Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, from this vantage point of the Temple Mount, as He laments over the state of that holy city, He grieves the fact that despite, he has, despite the fact that He has come to them to fully and finally save them and gather His people under His wings, despite the fact that God Himself has taken on flesh and has come to seek and save the lost, despite that God, as this great mother hen, was willing to make himself nothing and take on the form of a servant and and be found in the likeness of men, despite the fact that here in Jesus is Emmanuel, the greater temple, God literally fleshly with them, they were not willing to be gathered as vulnerable and as helpless as they were, they would not let Jesus save and protect them. But they they ran from Him, they fled from Him, they kicked against Him and resented Him. They would not let Him bear them up upon His wings to sweep them out of their captivity. They would not let Him hide them under His wings to protect them from their enemies. It was heartbreaking. This should break your hearts. I think what we see here, I think it breaks Jesus' heart. Remember last Sunday evening, we looked at Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout. 
and he uses this little phrase to describe Simeon, saying that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And what that means is that righteous and devout Simeon was actively looking for the day when God would bring his people into the full and final salvation that he had promised. Simeon was looking for the day when God would finally and fully bring his people back from their exile. You see, despite the fact that God had broken Israel's exile a mere 70 years after he had summoned the Babylonians to come and take his stubborn and sinful people into captivity, despite the fact that God had brought at least a portion of them back to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem and establish life in Palestine again. Despite all that, you understand Israel never really returned from their exile. Yes, some of them were once again able to live on their ancestral homelands, and they were able to reestablish the, the temple, although the temple that they built was woeful compared to the glories of Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. You remember the reaction of the elders in Ezra when they see the completed temple. They don't rejoice, they weep, because it is a poor imitation of what they had seen before. Now, of course, by Jesus' day, that temple had been replaced by Herod's temple, but the point is that while they were able to return and, and reestablish the temple and reestablish the system of sacrifice and the priestly ritual, so much of Israel remained away. So much of Israel remained in the diaspora scattered throughout Asia and then increasingly throughout Europe. And, and really, since Cyrus had issued his decree in 538 BC, freeing the Jewish exiles to return to their ancestral home ever since then and the return of the first exiles back to Jerusalem, we could say that things had really only gotten worse. The diaspora continued to increase and spread in the lands outside Palestine, and those who were able to return and live in that land which God had promised to Abraham struggled to rebuild their society and then suffered under successive empires. Their promised land, not so much being characterized by freedom and peace, but rather turned into little more than house arrest. And so, by the first century, righteous and devout Simeon wasn't the only one who was looking for the consolation of Israel. Every devout Jew was anticipating the day when God would fully and finally bring His people home and give them that peace and rest and joy that He had promised to them. We've said it before, but you understand that's what lies behind Pilate's presence in Jerusalem during the Passover. The Roman governor didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived at Caesarea Martima. Palestine was never considered the most salubrious of diplomatic missions to be sent on. This little, small, backwater, troublesome province carried little prestige. And so, one of the ways in which the governor could make his posting more palatable was at least by living in a villa on the coast. 
But every year at Passover, Pilate would relocate to Jerusalem to oversee the increased military presence that was needed in that city. And the reason that as as the Jews swelled into Jerusalem, increasing that population of the city manifold, that Passover became a time of of nationalistic fervor. Jerusalem became a tinderbox that could explode at any time into rebellion against the Romans. And as Israel celebrated this festival in which they remembered God's salvation of His people out of Israel, they actively anticipated God's salvation of His people out of this, out of this ennui that they found themselves in. They actively anticipated the consolation of Israel. It's what lay behind the celebrations of the crowd as Jesus came into Jerusalem seated on that donkey's colt. For those pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem for Passover, it all fits. Well, of course the Messiah is coming to Jerusalem at Passover because now He's come to lead us out and He has come to bring us into into the fulfillment of God's promises. Jerusalem actively was anticipating the the day when God would come again and bear them up as if on eagles' wings and bring them into the full and final promised land, the day when He would gather them all under His wing and give them rest from all their enemies, just as He had promised to David. But as Jesus stands on this temple mount and He looks out over Jerusalem, He stands brokenhearted, lamenting and mourning. Because although... That day had indeed come, that in His arrival, the day of the consolation of Israel had come as Simeon celebrates. Despite the fact that the mother hen had indeed come to gather her chicks under her wing, God had come to save His people, to cover them, protect them. That God had come in the person of Christ to console His people and fulfill His promises. They were not willing to receive Him. So consumed had they become by their self-focused, self-reliant religion, they simply were not willing to be saved and reconciled to God. And so as Jesus says in verse 38, their latter state, it's worse than their former state. This rebellion means that the, the temple is is made desolate. Notice how he refers to it no longer does he call it God's house, but devastatingly he calls it your house. It so twisted and corrupted the temple that it was no longer that monument to redemption that God had established it to be, but it was now a hollow monument to their own selfish idolatry. It's a devastating condemnation. In chapter 24, we will look at what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. That is the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD, that great definitive moment that testified to the new covenant reality of God's dwelling directly in His people by His Holy Spirit. That's the abomination of desolation. But you see, by calling it your house and not God's house, Jesus is pronouncing the desolation of the temple. It is desolate. God's presence has gone from it. 
as grand and as glorious as this edifice was, as, as elaborate and as dramatic as the priestly ritual was, all of it is, is hollow. The way that they have treated Jesus, the way that they have rejected Him, the way that they have refused to be gathered under His wing demonstrated that it was not God that they worshipped in that place, but themselves. And so this grand temple now stood, not as a testimony to the glory of God among His people, but it stands as an empty palace a deserted palace that testifies to the ignorance of the people. And you understand, this is really the perfect message for Christmas. And it's at this time of the year that we are confronted with the wonderful truth of Emmanuel, the wonderful truth of God with us, of God made flesh, come to bring the consolation of Israel, come to redeem the people of God from their sin. Essentially, we could say that the message of Christmas is the message that the hen has come to gather her brood under her wings, that God has come to save His people from their enemies, that He has come to save them from their sin, to protect them and preserve them and give them life. And the big question of Christmas it's what are you going to do with that? Are you going to see the glories of Christ the Redeemer and run to Him and hide yourself under His wing? Are you going to resent Him? Are you going to resent the demands that He makes of you, telling you, as He has done throughout Matthew's Gospel, that to enter His kingdom by faith means giving up your own little kingdom? It means submitting to Him mind, body, and soul. It means, it means loving Him with all your mind and your heart and your soul and your strength. What will you do? Jesus has come. The consolation of Israel is at hand. This is Emmanuel. This is God come to gather His brood. What will you do? Will you run to Him or will you run from Him? The day will come. Jesus says in verse 39, when you will have no choice. A day will come when even His enemies will be forced to bow before Him and acknowledge His glory in the words of Psalm 118, 26. A day will come when all men, whether they have run to Him or from Him, will be forced to declare that He is the Blessed One who has come in the name of the Lord but they will confess it not in genuine repentance. The wicked will not confess it in genuine repentance, but in a mournful, grudging acknowledgement. The day will come when everyone will see the glory of Christ, when the vestly veil will be removed and we'll see Him as He is. But you understand the invitation goes out now. The invitation goes out now. Look and see His glory as the Redeemer. Look and, and see Him as the one who has come to set His people free and to bring them into the true life that is found in union with God. And so do not resist Him. Do not run from Him, run unto Him. As, as little chicks run to their mother, run to Him and find salvation in Him. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, 
God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what we see here. In the wake of a victory over his opponents, there is no showboating on the part of Jesus. There's no gloating. There's just Ezekiel 33, heartbreak over the stubborn refusal of the wicked to lay hold of the salvation that is offered to them. Let's pray. Almighty God, these verses are short, but they are sobering. We thank you, Father, for these little vignettes in Scripture in which we are able really to withdraw alone with our Savior and in a sense hear His prayers. Oh, Father, we mourn with Him over the first century Judaism who would not be gathered to their God. We mourn now for contemporary Judaism who will not be gathered to their God. We mourn, we lament the covenant children we know who have wandered away and who will not be gathered by their God. We think of our friends, our family, our neighbors, who will not heed that gospel message and will not be gathered by their God. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of true compassion, hearts that mirror our Savior's heart, that we would weep for the lost, and that we would bid them come as there is still time to come and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to come and rejoice in Christ the Savior, to come and hide in Him. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to have the heart of the Savior, to never delight in the death of the wicked, but to plead with them as long as we have breath that they might come and that they might be gathered to God. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.